Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we talk with authors of books with folklore content or interest about their work. The Folklore Podcast Book Club is part of the Folklore Network. All of our episodes can be found in the sound archives of the Folklore Library and Archive, a volunteer-run organisation with a goal to collect, save and preserve folklore material for future researchers. You can find out more at www.folklorelibrary.com. Today, guest reviewer Hilary Wilson speaks with Dr Maria de Blasi about her book Weep Woman Weep, the story of which is built around the Mexican legend of La Llorona. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr Maria de Blasi, here to talk about her new book, Weep Woman Weep. Dr. Maria de Blasi is a native Mestiza living in New Mexico and an award-winning writer and educator. She's released several nonfiction books about everyday magical practices and the Gothic genre, and she runs an extremely informative website full of witchy recipes that can be done right in your own kitchen. So how are you doing today, Maria? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. As long as the crow doesn't interrupt us, I think that we'll have a good time. (laughs) So I read your book, uh, Weep, Woman, Weep, recently, and I have to say that it was one of the most moving books I've read in quite some time. It was absolutely incredible what you could fit into just so few pages. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, it's been a story that's been uh, speaking to me for a while, so I'm, I'm glad it also spoke to you and it's um, resonating with people. <laughs> It's hard to see how it wouldn't. It was very evocative of the kind of thing that I've seen done with Pan's Labyrinth, the kind of dark fairy tale that just really reaches into your soul and grabs a hold of it. Thank you so much. So the story of Weep, Woman, Weep is a bit of a modern fairy tale, you know, surrounding the folk story of La Llorona which is perhaps better known here uh, from that certain movie that came out a couple of years back. (laughs) Yes. um, So La Llorona, um, for people who aren't familiar with this legend, um, it's La Llorona means the weeping woman. And it's a common urban legend ghost story that's told in a lot of Hispanic and Latinx communities. And the way the original legend kind of goes is that there's this beautiful woman and she gets swept off her feet by a handsome vaquero or, um, you know, rich rancher. And she thinks she's going to live happily ever after, but she finds out, you know, he's cheating on her. You know, there's variations of the story, but that's kind of the big one. And in this fit of rage, she drowns her children in the river. So she just goes crazy with the uh, realization that her husband no longer loves her, drowns her kids. And in New Mexico, she drowned them in the the Rio Grande. And the second she does it, she feels instant remorse and tries to get them back and dies in the process. So the legend is that she haunts the riverways looking for her kids. Now, growing up... That's always a scary story we tell each other and that, you know, kind of gets passed down to kids. It's, it's kind of a cautionary tale, you know, 
don't be out too late or La Llorona will get you. Um, because part of the legend is that if she can't find her kids, she'll kind of grab whatever child is there. And so she'll take them down. So if you're um, foolish enough to be, you know, in a ditch or uh, in, you know, by the river late at night, she can get you. And so all these urban legends come out of that of kids surviving and there's, you know, a lone bloody handprint on their shoulder and they barely <laughs> survive La Llorona. And, you know, I grew up terrified of that story and, you know, I would have nightmares as a kid about it because we'd tell each other the story on the playground. And there's this really, I always, I laugh about it now and I wrote about it in my book, Everyday Enchantments, but um, there was this tree that would brush right up against my window in my childhood bedroom and it would like scrape against the window on windy nights. And I would always get so scared because it felt like, you know, I, this is how I knew I was going to be a writer, right? I have a very active imagination, but I was like, it's Leona like scraping, clawing to get in. Um, she and missed you last like, time, but she's back for more. Exactly. And part of the legend goes, you know, when you hear the wind whipping at night, it's really Leona howling and weeping for her children. So as a kid, when you hear the wind and then the tree branches scraping against the window, you're like, it's Leona. Um, But there's also a lot of really... Uh, interesting cultural dynamics that play in that story, which I learned about as I got older. Um, so some of the origins of that story, you know, go back to the Aztecs. Some people say La Llorona was um, Mama Linche, who was the Aztec interpreter for Hernan Cortez. They had an affair. And then, of course, he leaves her to go back to his respectable Spanish wife. And she's kind of left torn between cultures, right? She has his child. Um, who is a mixed heritage baby, and she's abandoned by her own um, indigenous community because she's seen as a traitor. Um, she's abandoned by the Spanish conquistadors because she's no longer needed, and her sorrow and her trauma comes out of the violence of colonization and how it uh, rips people apart from their communities. So when I drew on that for We Bloom and Weep, I played with both those stories. So the, um, the terror of the urban legends that we grew up with as a child. And then I drew on the idea of um, the histories of trauma written in our blood, because uh, we are all products of colonization. So I say I'm mestiza, which means mixed race. So I am Hispanic, Latinx, indigenous, and European. Um, and part of recognizing that you're mestiza is realizing that you have this history of colonization, this history of violence in your blood, and it really is an ancestral haunting. It, it shapes things. Um, it, it shapes how we are moving forward, and specifically because we don't always have direct cultural ties to our past. So I know some things about my cultural heritage but some things are just lost because of the push for cultural assimilation and whitewashing. And so I played with the idea of the La Llorona myth in Weep Woman Weep to focus specifically on um, that push for cultural assimilation and the violence of that. So in my story, La Llorona only goes after young women and her part of the reason why she marries the, the rich, handsome vaquero in her story is she's trying to purify the bloodlines. She's trying to whiten out 
um, the skin. So on the one hand, you feel for Laetona because she is um, a victim of trauma too. You know, part of what brought her to her devastating choices is the violence of cultural assimilation and colonization. Where we feel less sympathetic towards her in the story is that she continues to pass on that trauma. Um, <laughs> she, she won't just stop the trauma with her. So Mercy, our protagonist, who has been touched by La Llorona, she wants to be the cycle breaker. She wants to be the person who decides not to pass on that trauma. Yeah, and to not pass on the trauma, she has to actually, you know, embrace her own, you know, traditional roots to embrace her own race and to learn more about it, you know, rather yes. than to simply shove it away to try to further assimilate or to, you know, try to just ignore it, which I thought was insanely powerful. Thank you, you so know, much. Yes. I knew the urban legend of, you know, the weeping woman going into the book, but you're reading about the the interpretation that you used in it and then you're seeing that that story you know, being tied to colonization that so many people believe that's the origin even though the origin might actually go back you know even further in time that the fact that in popular knowledge that is seen as the origin is absolutely amazing to me you know that says so much about how it speaks to us is and I think um, you know one of the things that I love about Mercy's journey is she does really have to embrace the old ways and yet she also has to fundamentally recognize that she doesn't completely know what that whole legacy is for her right she doesn't know what her direct indigenous line is because so much gets lost but so she has to rely on her own intuition and her own um sense of how things are moving forward so she knows some things and then kind of builds um, and heals through there and I think that's a very common uh, mestizaje experience where we know a little bit about stuff um, and in some ways it's impossible to reclaim certain things so we have to build a way forward with what we know um, and interestingly I think a lot of people, even if they don't realize the long indigenous connection to the legend of La Llorona, I think it still speaks to us in that way. Um, because a lot of this story is also about Catholicism and uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the uh, real violence of Spanish colonizers and uh, you know how religion is really um, uh, exploited, suppressed, oppressed uh, women, uh, indigenous bodies. And so part of the breaking free from light on a spell is saying, I'm allowed to uh, move away from those things that have been heavily romanticized in history. Cause you know, especially in Mexico, it's so easy to romanticize Spanish <laughs> culture. Oh, yeah. Spanish religion, you know, it sounds like a beautiful celebration, but when you get to the heart of it, you realize, you know, there's a lot of exploitation and violence happening there and a lot of silencing of indigenous voices. So um, part of the legend of La Llorona is really recognizing how damaging a lot of that has been to us collectively as a culture, and not just for women, it's affected men, as we see in the story too, uh, men trying to work through that historical trauma as well. And 
one of the things I really wanted to focus on um, is how this idea of ancestral trauma is really like a haunting in and of itself. If you're not conscious of it, it will follow you and shape your life choices, the, you know, your, the, your direction in life without you even really realizing it. So as Mestizaje, we have to be incredibly conscious of the fact that those hauntings are real. Um, because if we don't, we do kind of end up, uh, you know, passing on that generational trauma. Now, one of the things that really struck me um, was your use of baptism in the book that La Llorona was not just drowning. You know, people know she was baptizing them. And the idea of her losing her children, you know, through baptism rather than through drowning, you know, was extremely poignant right now when so many stories are coming out about uh, residential schools and about um, that bit of history becoming just more acknowledged um, rather than, you know, simply hidden. It you know, struck me as just there was a lot of the book that really uh, hit <laughs> yeah, hard. Absolutely, um, it is. Yeah, I um, absolutely. <laughs> it is, and I, I think recovering those histories are incredibly important. Um, you know, in Albuquerque, there's a cross section uh, of Carlisle Street that intersects with Indian School, and that those streets, of course, were named after the Carlisle Indian School that was here, which is essentially a cultural assimilation boot camp, and it's something that is really shaped our culture in profound and terrifying ways. And yet it's in many ways still reduced to a cross section in a street because people aren't as aware of it, unless of course, you know, you're, you're part of the indigenous communities. Um, so that's something I definitely wanted to talk about in the book, uh, the baptisms in particular, because when we think of baptism through that, you know, idealized religious lines, it's a rebirth, it's a beautiful thing. But what people don't realize is that it's also um, another form of colonization and cultural assimilation. So it seems nice and neat and pretty and clean, but it's actually quite terrifying. And I liked the fact that you juxtaposed that, you know, with the bit of magic you know, so to speak, that Mercy's mom did. So you have what's generally seen as positive, you know, in the baptism, you know, turned on its head as a way of utterly erasing your identity, you know, erasing everything that you could have been and replacing it with something more hollow, you know, just the same as everybody else. But then you have the, you know, bit of magic that Mercy's mom did that has an extremely positive effect on things, but that is also seen as something incredibly dark, something not to be touched because it's something traditional. Yes, there's, um, I'm, I'm trying not to give too many things away. Yeah, I'm trying not to as well. I'm, I'm trying not to spoil, but. Yeah, yeah I, uh, so I've, I've tried to be careful how I, how I talk about it, but um, yeah, I wanted to look at, so, so one thing, um, colonization does is it villainizes um, folk magic practices. So conjure magic, uh, conjure practitioners, and curanderismo. So curanderismo um, is a type of folk healing that is really common in New Mexico and other places. 
but it's not just being a medicinal healer, you're healing the soul as well. So if you have a cold, you have to kind of check in with your energetic alignment and see what else is going on. Um, you look to see if someone's giving you the evil eye and how that's affecting your life. You, um, so it's all about mind, body, spirit. And it's not just, you know, here's some cough syrup. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's very much woven into this sense of magic. So when colonizers get their hands on it, it becomes dark and evil because it's not something they understand. Um, whereas in this story, I wanted to look at those things as really focused in folk magic that is very aware of the consequences of drawing on that stuff, but also the necessity of it. Um, sometimes what seems like a dark thing is actually quite positive and it's not as easy. Um, you know, life isn't just as easy as like praying to God for protection. <laughs> it's, I need to do something in order to protect myself or my family. Um, it might look dark, but it's actually quite a powerful thing. And the darkness is only there because um, essentially colonizer culture doesn't understand what it is. So they can't, they don't understand it. They can't control it. So it becomes evil, but there's actually quite a powerful uh, legacy of those things. And a lot of it is rooted in understanding the energy around you, understanding um, life force of plants and animals and our relationship to one another. So it's, um, I think that as almost like a denser magic or a more grounded magic, it's, it's uh, all about focusing energy and really conjuring in a grounded, forceful way. And that was something that I also was seeing reflected in Mercy's journey overall, where, you know, something as easy as you know, the way that people in the town were looking at her and thinking of her, you know, could have been seen as them giving her the evil eye, you know, just by, you know, just by them thinking what they were, you know, these rumors of the strange woman down the road, you know, but then by virtue of her, you know, reconnecting with the world, reconnecting with plants, reconnecting with life, that begins to, you know, cause a shift in the energies. And yeah. that's, that's something that I you know, see a lot happening in, you know, Native American culture right now, you know, just by virtue of so many people, you know, with that heritage reconnecting with their history, you know, something is changing. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, Mercy, one thing I try to be intentional about in this book is her magic feels very subtle and it's quiet and you only see the shift after the repetition of the conjuring. So I, um, so like I'm, I call myself a Buha in my daily life, right? I, I'm, I'm part of that legacy reclaiming the curanderismo and um, all of that. But I think one thing that gets kind of lost in witchy culture is just how much intention and ritualizing of routine it takes to change those things. So I think sometimes we get caught up in the, I call it the Instagram culture of spells. Yes, and it's like, it's beautiful and exciting, but the real magic happens in very grounded ways. So Mercy is just, she's like, all right, I'm in a situation. I, 
you know, my best way forward is to recognize that La Llorona is there. I'm going to keep my eye on her because I know she's after me. And I'm going to every day just get up and work towards breaking this curse and changing my life. And for a long time, it seems like nothing's happening for her, right? Or sorrow on top of sorrows keeps happening or she has a decent life, but maybe there's something lacking. And then suddenly things start happening, right? Or a big thing will happen and it's like really exciting. And then it seems like nothing's happening for a bit. And that's how real magic is. You just keep pondering and it's slow. And then eventually you look and you realize, oh my gosh, I've accomplished all these things. I've come so far. And I didn't even quite realize just how much I was doing as I was doing it. Yeah, I think that's also true of just the way that a lot of people process trauma, you know, whether it's generational or whether it's something, you know, more sudden, like a lot of us have experienced over the course of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, a lot of the healing is just the day to day, you know, the day to day work. And that's not something that you see on Instagram or witch talk, as a lot of the occult community is calling that. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's funny that it's, there's so much that is just below the surface. And I really felt that when I was reading your book, you know, by the time that I reached the end, there were tears in my eyes, you know, just seeing how the journey had you know, culminated. It, it's very powerful. And it is a very subtle magic that flows through the pages. It's, you can really see the amount of attention that you've put into it and the amount of truth that's there. Thank you. Yes, I, I think, um, so my, my philosophy as like a, a bruja and a writer is that, you know, my, my tagline for all the work I do is true magic is in the everyday. And it really is, you know, the mundane things that we take for granted, that's where the healing and the magic happens. And it's not flashy. It's not pretty. Um, it's these innocuous moments that we choose to invest in that really shape things. Um, and, and the routines that we establish become this ritualized form of conjuring. And the one thing I do want to emphasize too with my magical practice and with mercy, foundational core of that is, and a foundational core of working through generational trauma and ancestral hauntings is really growing into our profound capacity for joy. Which if you have that trauma in your background, you know, ancestrally or more immediately, or as you said, the pandemic, which has traumatized all of us in a lot of different ways, um, your knee-jerk response is to look for more trauma, to, to feed that trauma, right? That's exactly what La Llorona does by taking more women to baptize in the story. Um, she wants, you know, it's that old saying, misery loves company, right? So it's like- it's a it's very like, hungry ghost. Exactly. Hungry. So it starts constellating that energy. So in order to break that cycle and to heal, we really have to um, nourish and tend that capacity for happiness and pleasure. And that's uh, for Mercy, where she really is able to break free in a lot of ways from Laetona is learning to trust the good things that come into her life. Um, It was also a lot of reintegration into community at large. And to realize, you know, the rhythms of music as well, and the joy that that can bring. And those both resonated with me um, very powerfully, because, you know, a lot of the you know, basis of folkloric study is learning about the communities around you, 
you know, learning about the stories they tell and how the stories reflect experiences. And that's something that as time goes on, you know, communities become more, more fractured. They become more virtual. They become, you know, more scattered across the globe. But there's still that basic community of right where you live right now. And becoming engaged in that can be a scary thing. You know, it certainly was for mercy. Um, but it also is something that shouldn't be given up on you know, so easily. Absolutely. And I, I say this with a lot of love for all the introverts out there because I too am a hardcore introvert. Oh, same, same. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes what you have to do, and I think what Mercy has had to do, is she had to step back and say, okay, these relationships I'm currently being exposed to are incredibly toxic. You yes. know, so that's part of the story. She pulls back and she's like, I choose not to engage in these things, which is a huge deal for a woman who's uh, pretty isolated and on her own at the start of the story, or a young girl, really. Um, and then you have to trust, it's almost like as she pulls back, she's able to then forge meaningful connections in a way that's authentic to her. Um, because she's finding people who are on her same, same wavelength. And maybe they're people who've been there before, like Mr. Consuelo, that she's learning to appreciate in a deeper way. And then there's just other people she's being exposed to. So she's she starts learning that there are different communities in the town of Swanio that she didn't even know about. You know, as she pulls away from the trauma, healthier uh, relationships, healthier communities and connections start coming to the fore. And I think that's something for me personally, I went through actually during the pandemic where prior to that, I was feeling really uh, burned out with some things. And I just mm -hmm. said, all right, we're on six week lockdown. <laughs> I need to just, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to pull back and reassess where I'm at. And once you do that, you know, you let go of the things that are toxic. You're really opening yourself up to potential for healthy relationality, uh, different communities. And I've, you know, I, I have a lot of internet friends, <laughs> which have come beautifully out of this pandemic. I've uh, found, um, wonderful new communities that speak better to my introversion here in Albuquerque. And in some cases, I've uh, been able to deepen relationships with the healthy relationships that were already there. I just have uh, more energy for them now that I'm not feeding toxic stuff. So um, that is very much a part of the healing process and the healing of trauma is understanding, you know, what energy, you know, how are you investing your energy in healthy ways and healthy relationships? And that seems to be a very key idea in, um, you know, the folk magic as well, is that, you know, the healer is somebody who people decide is the healer. You know, they decide the community has to call you this for you to be truly part of it. You know, otherwise you're just another person who's claiming something with no background in it. So selling your snake oil and all yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, well, that was something that really fascinated me because it's something that I've you know seen a lot in indigenous communities. And to see it portrayed the way that you did in the book was just really, it spoke true. Thank you. Yes, and I think too, um, Mercy, she she's incredibly brave because basically what she said is, I'm not afraid to cut ties with these things that have time and again proven to be toxic. And I think that's such an important thing 
that we all need to remember how to do because when you're trapped in those cycles, those toxic communities, those um, perpetuate those things that perpetuate generational trauma, it's so easy to normalize that and think it's okay. Especially as a woman, a young woman. And it's so easy to rationalize away those things like, um, you know, poor Layadona, she just had it rough. I, you know, (laughs) I hope she works through her stuff and you're like, (laughs) she's pretty dark. (laughs) So for her to say, you know, I have this profound belief in myself that if I do this, I will find a way forward. Um, That's one of the most powerful forms of magic. And I think when people start seeing her as a healer in the story, it's because she's really been able to model a way forward that a lot of people have been struggling to figure out themselves. So one of the things she realizes in the story as it develops is that she's not the only one trying to figure out how to break free. And so she feels this real sense of solidarity and hope seeing all these people trying to break free in their own ways where she looks at people in her family with the previous generation trying to do that. And she sees, I'm not alone in this. And so again, as she, you know, at the start of the story, she seems incredibly isolated, breaking away from these toxic things. But in the end, she feels this real sense of um, connection to the earth, the people around her who want to heal, and this real sense of vitality um, because she chose hope and healing over trauma. Yeah, and to, and to realize how difficult things were for previous generations and how hard they worked. You know, that was just also something that really struck me because when you're young, you might not realize, you know, exactly what went into it. And people are not always willing to share those stories and with good reason. Right. But those are stories that you can start to piece the puzzle together, you know, over time. And it becomes really powerful, you know, whether or not you hear it in their own words. And just right. to think about what people go through, it's, it's really incredible stuff. And yeah. the focus on food was also something that just really was of interest to me. Um, there are a lot of communities right now that are focused on decolonizing um, people's diets and realizing that a lot of the food that was you know, offered and that our ancestors ate was much healthier than the poverty diets that you know, a lot of our people have been forced to eat. So it was interesting to see that reflected you know, in the book and how incredibly healing just something as simple as food choices can be. It is, and it's um, a difficult thing I think to get used to so I really love gardening I love you know supporting my local farmers I love um getting my hands dirty in the dirt and I think and and there's this whole movement now too that's in alignment with decolonizing the diet there's the rewilding of spaces so um restoring natural habitats uh, utilizing uh Uh, plants that work best with your various, you know, uh, your climate, your soil, all of that. So basically being more sustainable and, and working with the land rather than um, trying to, you know, 
grow things that might not work in, in a New Mexican desert or wherever you, you're from. And so I was writing this, I became really interested in um, really using that as a metaphor for mercy to not only heal herself, but to heal the land and that those things are intertwined. And part of that is her thinking about consumption. So what do we consume literally? What do we consume energetically? What do we expose ourselves to? What do we absorb throughout the day? And I will say that I am just a sucker for a good root vegetable. (laughs) I love, you know, radishes are my favorite. Um, Turnips, I've developed a really just beautiful love affair, culinary love affair (laughs) with them as I was writing this story. Um, And I think it's because, you know, something like a turnip or parsnip, those are things that people would want to throw away or roll their eyes at or just be like, gross. Um, They're actually quite delicious and nutritious. I love that you can eat like the greens and the root. So I I think it's also for me looking at those root vegetables and particularly turnips in Weep Woman Weep as something again that, that feels just so ordinary, it's boring, but it's actually quite magical and life-giving. And it's not you know, we talked about roses there as well, desert roses in the story, which, you know, are a little more romantic. Yes. Have their purpose as well. But um, it's really the turnip that, you know, um, keeps mercy going. It's, and it's fresh food. It's food that's grown from our own hands. It's healthy. It's not, you know, um, super heavy. And so it's really reclaiming our right to, to health, to wellness, to what we've been told about authentic cuisine. Um, you know, uh, in New Mexico, especially, you know, people are like, well, it's not authentic New Mexican <laughs> food unless you cook it with lard or you have to cook it with this. And, you know, you have to really say, actually, a lot of this came from, like a lot of those unhealthier things came from colonization. There's a much healthier way to go about this that is working with nature rather than against it. Not everything is fry bread. Exactly. Not everything is fry bread. <laughs> fry not, bread is delicious, but not everything is fry bread. <laughs> exactly. It is quite delicious. Um, but there's more to it than that. Yeah. And it's not just, um, I think when people think of New Mexican food, um, you know, fry bread, tamales, chile, beans, they think of that as something that's really heavy um, because of the lard and the frying and all yeah. that. But it, it's actually quite healthy if you cook it right. <laughs> if you cook it in a more, uh, I guess, decolonized would be the way to say it, in a more traditional way, it's it's quite healthy. Um, and so it's it's part of it is unlearning that history of um, of culinary colonization in many ways. Uh, one of the recipes that uh, my husband and I are trying to get the ingredients for right now were uh, dumplings that are made out of juniper ash. Um, and they're generally paired with uh, tapari beans or tepari beans and it sounds absolutely delicious and it's insanely healthy because you know just one teaspoon of the juniper ash is as much calcium as a glass of milk but that's not a dish that a lot of people you know would think of so it just it struck me as really interesting especially um, since you know at least among the Diné so many of the recipes that are seen as traditional now are extremely meat heavy when so much of the actual traditional recipes are 
plant-based just because of the way things went with colonization. Exactly. Yeah. We think of meat, we think of lard, we think of frying and that's, you know, in New Mexico, that's from the uh, Spanish vaqueros. That's from the ranchers. And really plant-based diets are more quote unquote authentic, right? If we're thinking of traditional indigenous cuisine, um, we also have really cool movements that are happening in New Mexico, but also all over the place of wild crafting and wild harvesting. So uh, drawing, you know, using those native plants to feed ourselves, but also not over harvesting. So giving back to the earth as much as we take. And it really is about restoring our relationship to the land and to ourselves. Um, because I, I think as much as we can exploit the land, we can also exploit ourselves and expect too much of ourselves. Um, yeah, I'm really glad to hear that rewilding is getting so popular, you know, there. I've been following it in much broader strokes over the years. And I do recall that uh, out in New Mexico, there have been jaguar sightings for the first time since the 1800s. Yes. Well, I live, um, so I teach at, my primary institution is a local community college on the um, satellite campus I teach at in Albuquerque is right by the mountains. And um, we often get, you know, we get a uh, mountain lion sighting or coyote sighting and they'll just come on in to to campus and stroll around, especially since, you know, during the pandemic, there are not as many people there. So early in the morning or at night, you'll just see them walking around, living their best life. So oh, that's um, wonderful. That's yeah. a real sign of, you know, the land starting to heal. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's beautiful to see um, so many people tending the land in that way. This, um, deep devotion, you know, because when I think of community, I, I don't just think of people, I think of the earth, I think of the land, I think of the animals, and you see people just tending our relationship to those things and deepening it in really powerful ways, and I think, you know, for Mercy and Weep Women Weep, her best and deepest relationships come from just showing up and working the land every day, and suddenly, She's not only, you know, there's a small line in the end of the book, animals start coming back to the land, but then she starts meeting people at, that really um, enhance her life. And so it's just really beautiful because it starts with her deciding to plant some seeds. Um, so healing the relationship to the land ends up healing so much more for her. You just have to continue to tend to what you plant, whether it's an idea, an actual plant or you know, a connection with a new person. Exactly. So now, do you have anything new that you're working on? Well, I um, I just came out with a second book, Practically Pagan, an Alternative Guide to Magical Living. It came out a little after We Women We Did. So um, it has a lot of those foundational practices, really, that Mercy works on, just showing up every day. So um, I've been working on that a lot getting that out into the world mm -hmm. and now that that's been birthed um i'm starting to work on the sequel to um or the companion story to weep women weep called mercy road and it'll be a novella which focuses on santos and his story oh that's um, exciting i'm yeah, definitely I, going to want to get that 
Yes, I'm excited. So Santos is a character who comes up later in um, the story, uh, Weep Woman Weep, in very powerful and joyful ways. And he's got some secrets of his own and some ancestral hauntings of his own that he needs to, to heal. So the story is about him and how he got to uh, Mercy Farm and where he he's going next and where he and mercy will be going so uh mercy road i hope it i hope to have it out by next year well that's excellent i definitely look forward to it i'm gonna be at the edge of my seat for that yeah thank you yes it's santos is a uh an interesting character i've um i, love I was, ex- <laughs> I was extremely drawn to him while reading the book yeah. and i didn't want to say too much to avoid spoilers for the listeners but i'm very yeah. excited about that me too. And, That's um, our, our little teaser for that. And uh, I'm expect, excited to spend more time with Mercy as well. <laughs> and I would love for you to uh, plug your website and your newsletter as well, uh, yes, because both uh, are wonderful. <laughs> oh, thank you. So my website is uh, com, And I post uh, musings on ordinary magic, kitchen witchery recipes and different things. And then I have a new thing I started called the Bruja Professor, where I offer my witchy take on literature, pop culture, and the occult. So everything's through the lens of healing and storytelling as a form of magic and the good and bad things we learn from stories. So what we have to unlearn, what we have to relearn, what we have to embrace. And I also do um, tarot readings. So most Tuesdays I do tarot Tuesdays so you can get your weekly forecast um and again all my readings are geared towards um hope healing and the magic of everyday life so um if you, if you want a little bit of everything <laughs> you know if you uh, like tarot and books and kitchen magic uh, come come join the fun yes thank you very much and i hope that i get to talk to you again very soon Yes, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Like I said, I really love this podcast. So it was, <laughs> I'm very excited when you reached out. So thank you. It's been a treat. Yeah, be well. Thanks to Maria for discussing her book, Weep Woman Weep, and to Hilary for this interview. You can learn more about Maria and her writing on her website at mariadeblassi.com. If you haven't seen our social media posts, We have a special limited edition t-shirt currently on sale on the Folklore Podcast web store, with all proceeds going to fund the work of the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Podcast. The t-shirt features the well-known Isle of Man poltergeist Jeff the Talking Mongoose, and will be available only until the end of 2021, after which time it will be removed from our web store forever. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com and go to the Folklore Shop to find it. The Folklore Podcast Book Club is part of the Folklore Network, striving to collect, save and preserve folklore material in all forms for the future. If you can help to support us in our work, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, where for as little as a pound a month you can aid us while receiving additional content to enjoy. Alternatively, visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com to make a one-off donation or simply share our content with your friends. If you can, please leave us a positive review on your podcast app of choice to help others to find our work. 
thank you, and see you next time.